Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray. And may we be zealous in seeking after you and lay hold of the truth of your word this morning and not only hear it, but do it. That we may live it out in the days of our lives that yet await us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Would you take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. If you're using the Bible in your row, this is going to be on page 822. And let me give you a little bit of context as to why we're stepping away from our Revelation, uh, our our series on the letters to the churches in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. As I mentioned, today is what's known in many gospel-believing churches as Reformation Sunday which remembers the events of October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, 95 complaints, to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, now Luther wasn't just a complaining church member. Those certainly do exist, but their list of complaints is longer than just 95. Luther realized that the church of his day looked almost nothing like the church Jesus came to build. And the goal of the Reformation was to reform the church that had become so deformed through centuries of unbiblical practice. And our goal today in remembering the Protestant Reformation is not to make much of men like Luther or Calvin or or others, but to reinforce our faith today that Jesus is keeping his promise to build his church no matter what man or devil may do. And so today, what we're going to look at is what it means that Christ promises to build his church. I hope it'll be of great encouragement to you because you and I can look around the world. We can even look around the church world and and be discouraged by how weak things seem. At, At times, how compromised the church is. But this promise is what we cling to, that Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So listen now to the reading of God's word, Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The grass withers, but the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. If you were to read almost any list of the most important events of the last millennium, any credible list must include the Protestant Reformation of 1517 near the top, if not as the most significant event of the last thousand years. There's several reasons for that. One is how it it revolutionized culture. Uh, The Reformation transformed marriage. It transformed government. The idea of liberty. All of those things were transformed in the Western world as a result of the Protestant Reformation. 
It was also an important event because of how the Protestant-Catholic divide would reshape world politics for several of the next centuries. But for our sake, the reason the Protestant Reformation was such an important event is that it dealt with the most important question that anyone can ever ask. And that is, how can sinful men, sinful women, sinful children, be found acceptable in the sight of a holy God? That's, that's the most important question we can ask. It's an eternal question. How can we be right with God? Now, that question wasn't new for the Protestant Reformation. Every religion on the face of the earth has in some way and with various terms sought to answer that question. How can we be right? How can we be righteous? What does righteousness mean? So it wasn't a new question, and the Reformation didn't provide a new answer to that question, but rather it returned to the same old answer, what the Scriptures taught. From the very beginning of the Bible, we are taught that if man is going to be accepted by a holy God, it must be on the basis of God's mercy, not what man deserves. Just think of Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. Do you remember the emotion that they felt? We're told that they were ashamed. They were naked and ashamed, so they hid. Now, to some degree, they were hiding their shame from each other, but the real one they were hiding from was God. And children, this is much the same way you might hide from a parent if you've done something you knew you shouldn't have done. They knew they weren't acceptable before him because of their sin. So do you remember what they did? They made coverings out of fig leaves. These were pitiful coverings. They knew it, but it was the best they could do. Do you remember what God did? This is all the way back in Genesis 3. God killed an animal, part of his creation that he had just made, and he used the skins of that animal to provide a covering for them. It's an amazing picture, isn't it? All the way back in Genesis 3, we're getting this picture of the cross, that if man were ever to be made acceptable before God, God himself would have to do it. If our sin and our shame were ever to be hidden, God himself would have to take it from us. The foundational teaching of the apostles and of the early church was that Jesus' blood alone is sufficient to cleanse us and make us acceptable by, before God. But God's people have serious problems with forgetfulness, don't we? And by the 1500s, that message that the blood of Christ alone can make us acceptable before God became all but buried under a thick sludge of man-made tradition, political manipulation, and theological malpractice. I want you to understand how the church, the 1500s, sought to answer that question prior to the Reformation. How can man be acceptable before a holy God? They looked at the book of Romans. I want you to look there with me for a moment. That's a great place to go if we're asking this question. But they went to a passage that they greatly misunderstood. Look with me at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, 
in the latter part of that verse, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Those are wonderful words, but the Roman Catholic Church misunderstood it. And here's what they understood Paul to be saying. The way we become acceptable to God is that he pours his love, he infuses his love, his grace into our hearts so that it changes us internally and we become inherently righteous. So that eventually we become acceptable in the presence of God. So that eventually we become worthy of heaven. Now, on the surface, those are all the right words, love and grace and heaven. It's even God doing it. So what's the problem? The problem is the idea that I could ever do enough to make myself worthy to stand in the presence of a holy God. The predominant view prior to the Reformation was that salvation was in Jesus Christ and good works and church membership and mass and indulgences and prayers to Mary and the saints and confession to a priest and purgatory. And the list goes on and on and on. And one of the most tragic aspects of this was that even the most devout churchgoer growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, one who probably did not own a copy of the scriptures and had not even heard them read in his or her own language, was trapped in an endless cycle of religious duty, but never reaching a point of assurance that he or she had ever done enough to be righteous before such a God. What does it do to you if you really believe that? Or, or another way of asking that question is, if my salvation is all about my own internal righteousness, how do I know if I've got enough? We, we don't have righteousness meters that show us that if it's to this point, if it's below this point, I'm unsaved. If it's above this point, then I'm safe. How can you know if you've ever done enough? And the answer was you couldn't. It was a miserable condition to be in. But thankfully, what the church was teaching is not what we see in Scripture. What we see in Scripture is that the power of, the, of salvation is in Christ alone. Not Christ and. Christ doesn't say in our passage, we will build the church. He says, I will build my church. I means it's Christ's church. Will means it's his purpose. Build means it's his work. My means it's his possession. Church means it's his holy people. This is all Christ's doing. And if we distill down the Reformation to what it was about, we can really say the Reformation was a question of and or alone. During the Reformation, there became five mottos, five boundary lines that are clearly uh, biblical, which helped to restore the purity of biblical Christianity over and against what the church had been teaching. All of them started with sola, which means alone in Latin. 
I want you to think of these as Christ's building plans. It's Christ who will build his church. What are the building plans? Well, the foundation is sola scriptura, scripture alone. And of course, you know with a foundation, if the foundation's off, the whole building will be off. Resting on that foundation are three pillars. Sola gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola fide, faith alone. And then upon these three pillars rests this glorious pinnacle pointing upwards towards heaven, more ornate and wondrous even than the Sistine Chapel. It's soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And so we're going to look at those five things, those five uh, building uh, instruments here. Let's think about the foundation, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura means that scripture is the ultimate authority in the church. The early church was willing to fight to the death over this issue because they believed that when the scriptures spoke, Christ spoke. However, through the years, that zeal waned. And prior to the Reformation, the authority of the church had become what what was called a three-legged stool. It was divided in three ways, Scripture and the Pope and church tradition. And, And supposedly all three had equal authority, but when it came down to it, Scripture was the short end of the stick. Scripture was often ignored for the sake of tradition or, or, or papal decree. We might wonder, how in the world did the church get to that point of investing so much authority into mere men? Well, some of it goes back to our passage today. Look there with me. In verse 13, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples give sort of a vague response, not wanting to commit to anything. And so they say, some say you're Jeremiah, some say you're Elijah. And Jesus looks at them and says, who do you say that I am? Now, shockingly, Peter got it right. If, if you know Peter, Peter didn't get it right often. But even a dead clock is right twice a day. And Peter got it right. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. But where Rome got confused is in verse 18, when Jesus says, you are Peter. Peter means rock. It was a nickname that Jesus gave to Peter. His real name was Simon. Jesus says, you are Peter, the rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. And Rome claimed that Jesus in that moment was passing the authority of the church to Peter. And Peter was the head of an unbroken line of apostolic succession that is given to the popes. So the popes are the recipients of the promise that Jesus made to Peter. That that was the belief in the church in that day and still in the Roman Catholic Church today. It's it's believed to be an unbroken line of apostolic succession. Well, that's not what Jesus meant there in, in that passage. So if it's not what he meant, what was he saying when he says, Peter, you're the rock on which I'll build the church? Peter had a unique role among the apostles. He was the spokesman. He he was the representative of the group. And so oftentimes we'll see Peter, even if it's wrong, he's saying what the whole group is whispering. He, He was the spokesman of the apostles. So when Jesus says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, he's actually saying, 
It's upon the teaching of the apostles. As the Spirit spoke through them in the Scriptures. Look with me. I want you to see this in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 19. Paul is using similar imagery for building the church. He's talking about how Christ has built the church. And in verse 19, he says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What's the foundation? The scriptures. The apostles and the prophets, that was shorthand for the whole of the Bible. So when Jesus says, Peter, you're the rock, he's saying the foundation is the prophets and the apostles. The scriptures are the foundation of the church. Now this was critical because Luther and the reformers knew that as long as the issue of authority, what the ultimate authority in the church was, as long as that was up in the air, the question of salvation could not be settled. And so the very first thing that they had to deal with was who or what holds final authority in the life of the church. And their answer, Scripture alone holds final authority. All other counsels may be wrong. All other confessions may be wrong. Scripture always gets the final word. Now, Luther wasn't the first to believe that that the Roman Catholic Church had overstepped its bounds. Before him, men like John Wycliffe in England and Jan Hus in Prague had sought to reform the church. But as you know, the Roman Catholic leadership didn't take kindly to their authority being questioned. And, And so each of these men were martyred before Reformation began. But God preserved Luther, and what God did through Luther was place the Bible back in the hands of the layman. The reformers believe that a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or council without it. They believed that the work of the church was to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And that started with knowledge of the scriptures. And they were committed to this work. Luther spent nearly a year translating the the scriptures into the vernacular so that the common people could read it. John Calvin, for his part, preached twice every Sunday and every day of alternate weeks. And and when he wasn't preaching, he lectured uh, on the Old Testament three times a week. And the product of the Reformation was a laity who wasn't just playing church. They weren't just following the leader. They knew the scriptures well. They could discern between orthodoxy and false teaching and were able to make disciples. That's how important it is to have a well-equipped laity. Luther and Calvin and Knox and others may have been the initial spark of the Reformation, but the flame spread as godly laymen and laywomen learned and lived the scriptures. Let me ask you, it's, the reformers had another motto. It was, it was that we're the church reformed and always reforming, semper reformanda. Now, not reforming according to the culture, but reforming according to the scriptures. And so you and I 
We don't just stand on these principles, but we ought to be applying them in our hearts and our lives. So let me ask you, how do you, in your own life, apply the principle of sola scriptura? It cannot be true in principle if it's not true in practice. Are you a people of the book? If you and I spend more time reading the newspaper, surfing the internet, even reading books, reading good Christian books, then we actually spend reading the Bible. We are not practicing sola scriptura. The church today is so busy practicing sola Netflix, sola Facebook, sola Fox News, and we neglect the principle and practice of sola scriptura. One word of what God said is worth more than a million words from men. The Bible is the word of Christ by which he takes hold of us, he guides us, and he builds his church. And so sola scriptura was the foundation of the Protestant Reformation, that the authority rests in the word of God alone. Well, upon that foundation of sola scriptura stood those three great pillars Sola gratia, solus Christus, sola fide, grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. What do they mean? Sola gratia, grace alone. It's the teaching of Scripture and thus the belief of the Reformers that any knowledge we have of God, any relationship we have with God, any hope we have of salvation must begin with the grace of God alone. Salvation from beginning to end is the work of God's grace. This was at odds with the view of the church of Luther and Calvin and others' day, where salvation came through baptism. The grace of salvation came, but it was a grace that had to be maintained through confession, through works of penance, through prayers to the saints, and so on. This is why works were so important in the medieval Catholic church because they were what secured our pardon. And if a person didn't have enough goodness in their life, they had not reached enough sanctification in their life, then they would have to go to this made-up place called purgatory, where they would spend a few thousand years being further purged of that unrighteousness. It was, as I said, an incredible burden to carry. I think Luther, Martin Luther, knew that burden as well as anyone He had not always been a monk. He was initially studying to be a lawyer. One evening, he had gone home to visit his family. He was heading back to the university. He got caught in a terrible lightning storm, and as a bolt struck near him, it threw him to the ground, and he cried out, Saint Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. We might wonder why he cried to Saint Anne and not to God. Luther had never spoken to God in his life. That was a terrifying thought to approach God. Well, who was St. Anne? St. Anne is believed to be the mother of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And and the thought was, if I ask St. Anne, maybe she'll put in a good word with with St. Mary, who will put in a good word with Jesus, who might put in a good word with the Father for me. He did survive the lightning strike. He kept his bargain with St. Anne by becoming a monk. But if we think that becoming a monk would alleviate his misery, it only got worse. 
He nearly worked himself to death trying to attain enough righteousness to make him fit for heaven, but it was always out of reach for him. There was always more to do. He deprived himself of comforts. He literally beat himself. He spent hours in confession every day, some days as much as six hours of confession, to the point that his confessor, the the priest that he went to to confess his sins, got so tired of him, he told him to stop coming back. When you spend six hours a day as a monk in confessional, that means you miss other duties. Where do you have to go if you've missed other duties? You've got to go back to confessional. And, and so Luther was on this hamster wheel uh, of trying to do good works and then trying to confess and repent of his bad works and then having more good works to try to do and never reaching a place of assurance of pardon. It was a miserable life. In his own words, Luther said, if anyone could get to heaven by monkery, it would have been me. But there was a phrase that had always perplexed Luther in the beginning of Romans, and I want you to look there with me. Romans chapter 1. As a monk, Luther had access to the scriptures. He was actually charged with teaching on two things, the Psalms and the Scriptures, both of which became very dear to him later in life. But actually, Romans 1 caused Luther incredible heartache. It was Romans 1.17. Paul's talking of the gospel, and he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther hated that verse because the way he understood it and the way that the Catholicism of his day had taught it was that the righteousness of God was a righteousness that Luther had to attain to. And so the gospel, which in Greek meant good news, actually just seemed to mock Luther because he thought, how can I ever attain to that level of righteousness? But thankfully, the Spirit opened his heart and eyes so that through his studies, he came to understand that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel was not God's disappointed anger with him, but it was God's grace. That God gives, by his grace, a righteousness that we didn't earn. He gives us Christ's righteousness. Luther called it an alien righteousness. It wasn't an innate righteousness. It was from the outside. And finally, Luther had the answer to the question, how can sinful men stand in the presence of a holy God? The answer was, by his grace alone. Luther wrote of this passage, then I grasped that the righteousness of God is the righteousness by which grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. He says, Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas the righteousness of God had filled me for so long with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. Now Luther had a dilemma if he continued to teach what he, if he taught what he believed the scriptures said, he was going to be in the crosshairs of the church. 
it would either land him in jail or at the stake. But he knew that to continue teaching the Roman Catholic system of, of works was an affront to God's grace. You see, as soon as grace requires us to do anything to merit it, it's no longer grace. Sometimes we hear it said that, that God helps those who help themselves, but the Bible says no. God helps those who know that they have absolutely no capacity to help themselves at all. And so Luther has to decide, do I risk it all to teach what the Scriptures teach, or do I conform to what Rome teaches? And in this famous line in 1521 at the Deet of Worms, he says, Here I stand. I can do no other. Well, how do we apply sola gratia? How do we apply grace alone in our own lives? It certainly means for us that we're a people who have to learn to see ourselves and our identity not through the lens of who we are and what we do, but through the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That is our identity before God. But have you ever noticed that even those of us who believe that we are justified by grace alone, we often expect others to be justified by works? particularly those closest to us. How many of us believe we're saved by grace alone, but we sure want our spouses to learn to measure up? Or we're constantly disappointed in other people? If we believe we are saved by grace alone, then we ought to extend that same grace to one another. That's what Paul says in Colossians, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Well, next to this pillar of sola gratia is solus Christus, Christ alone. The grace of God comes to us through the Lord Jesus alone. Just as a reminder, the teaching of the church in Luther's day was that we do look to Christ for salvation, but it's Christ and. Christ and the saints, Christ and Mary, Christ and the Pope. I don't know if you realize this, but the fuller name of the Pope is Pontifex Maximus. Do you know what that means in Latin? The great mediator. Set that alongside, let's just say 1 Timothy 2.5, where the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, there is only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. At every turn, it was Christ and. Are you familiar with the system of indulgences? You remember indulgences? They were a way that you could pay money to the church and you would get righteousness credited to your account or to the account of others. So there was a man famous for selling indulgences. His name was Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel would go to, to town, from town to town, and he had a saying in German, and in God's providence it translates well into English and still rhymes in English, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Indulgences help sinners to reach the righteousness required to stand before God. That, that was the practice of Rome. You, you know the story. You may even know that you can't buy indulgences today, but you can give a charitable donation and turn that in for indulgences. You can do it online. It's so simple. But did you ever wonder where the righteousness that you're purchasing comes from if you buy indulgences? 
Where's that righteousness coming from? If it's adding to my inherent righteousness so that I can become righteous enough for the presence of God, where am I getting that righteousness? Well, it was something called the treasury of merit. Think of the bank of merit. And the belief and practice of Rome was that there were some saints who were so righteous, they did more than enough works to get into heaven on their own. They had more than enough righteousness. And so, what do we do with all that leftover righteousness? Well, they put it in the treasury of merit. This is as crazy as it sounds, by the way. Put it in the treasury of merit, and people who had the means could buy that merit and credit it to their own or to the account of loved ones. How did Rome get to such a place of looking to everyone and everything alongside Jesus. The issue was they really didn't understand all that Christ had accomplished. They didn't understand what we sometimes call the glorious exchange, that upon the cross, Christ took to himself all our filth and our sin, and in exchange, he gives us all his righteousness. It's not a righteousness that that makes us in this world perfectly righteous enough to stand in the presence of God. It's what's called an imputed righteousness. It's a credited righteousness. And so when God looks upon sinners who trust in Jesus Christ, he actually sees the righteousness of Christ upon us. You know, that's why we don't need purgatory. The idea that we still need to be cleansed more from our sins. Not only is it not a biblical idea, but it's absolutely unnecessary. If you are in Christ, you are perfectly cleansed, completely cleansed from all your sins. We don't need purgatory. We don't need confessors. We don't need priests because all who are his are covered in his righteousness and we can come to him directly. You don't need Mary. You don't need Saint Anne. You don't need any of these others. You can come to Christ in his righteousness. By the way, if you think that all of that ended with the Protestant Reformation, it did not. There are still churches that teach the exact same thing. Let me read to you from an article published in a local newspaper this week from a church written by a a church in our community. The article was speaking of the role of confessing our sins to a priest, and it was explaining that we cannot confess our sins to God. We have to go to a priest, and then that priest can absolve us. That priest can then forgive our sins. Listen to this line in the article. it'll make you cry or laugh. I'm not sure which. The article says, wouldn't it be easier to confess our sins straight to God without a priest? Of course it would, but Jesus knew what he was doing. And it goes back and just reinforces the idea that you must go through a priest. Friends, if you are in Jesus Christ, then he is your great high priest and you can go directly to him. I probably shouldn't use the pulpit to share pet peeves, but if you really want to get under a pastor's skin, say something like this. Well, you have a direct line to God. Will you pray for me? Friends, if you are a Christian, you have a direct line to God through Christ Jesus. He is the one mediator between God and man. One drop of blood 
from the Lord Jesus is powerful enough to bring you into the presence of God, cleansed of all your sin and covered in his righteousness. That means everybody in this room is in one of two places. Either your sin is still with you, lying upon your shoulders and testifying against you before God, and you are lost, or your sin is upon Christ, and you will be saved. Salvation rests in Christ alone. Well, how do we apply that? If we believe that salvation is in Christ alone, how do we apply it? We need to understand this. Superficial views of Christ produce superficial Christians. You and I ought to think often and deeply of what the Lord Jesus has done, seeking to fill our minds and our vision with the wonder of this God who loved us enough that he should come to earth and take our place upon the cross. These are the very truths for which our minds were made. We weren't made to be amused constantly. We were made to be amazed by Jesus Christ. The only way I know how to approach truths like this is, is the way that the Apostle Paul in his words to the church at Corinth said it. I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. On this side of glory, there's so much we won't understand, but we ought to live to comprehend and to grab hold of every truth, every nugget of truth that our minds can grab hold of in the worship of Jesus Christ. Well, if salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, how do we receive it? Well, it's the third pillar, faith alone, sola fide. What is faith? Faith is more than mere knowledge. James tells us that, that the demons have more than enough knowledge of who God is. They know who Jesus is. They know his name. They know what he's done. And they tremble. Faith is looking to Jesus as our chief comfort and confidence in this world and the next. Scripture teaches that it is by faith alone that our sins are forgiven. Now, faith is not a work. Sometimes people think of it that way, that faith is something we do. Faith is actually the opposite of saving works. It acknowledges that in a million lifetimes, we couldn't do enough to merit salvation. And so we look to Jesus instead of ourselves. Even faith is a gift from God. We don't conjure it up. We don't make it up. We don't muster it up. It's a gift. And apart from faith alone, in Christ alone, there is no salvation. One of the problems Rome had with Luther's teaching was they said, if salvation is full, final, and free in Jesus Christ, then people are going to live lawless lives and they're going to ignore all the commands of Scripture. That was one of Rome's big heartaches. Have you ever thought about that? If we believe salvation is by grace alone and it's received by faith alone, does that negate obedience to God's law? Rome certainly said it did. But they didn't understand what faith alone means. Faith alone is not a rejection of good works altogether. 
It's a reordering of them. Rather than good works being the root of our salvation, good works become the fruit of our salvation. They grow out from a heart that is filled with faith. And and so true saving faith doesn't see salvation as freedom to sin all we want. It's actually just the opposite. It's freedom from sin so that we can live to the glory of God for the first time. It's only love for God when we serve God out of loving obedience. It's just like the illustration I used earlier. If a man does all these kind things for his wife but then says, well, I had to, it's not love. Until we understand saving faith, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we'll always try to earn it from God. But once we understand what he's done for us, good works flow as a response to what he's done for us. So salvation is of Christ alone, by grace alone. Let me ask you, how do we as a church apply sola fide? How does this matter to us day by day? The test is this question. To what or to whom do you look for salvation? I often ask people that question, even folks who visit the church, and oftentimes their answers are, well, I give to the church, I attend every week, I used to teach Sunday school, I, 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 I. Faith looks away from itself to what Jesus has accomplished. Is that where your faith rests? Not in what you have done, but what Christ has done for you. Upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. So salvation is of grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. Those are the pillars, and then on top of the pillars rests this glorious roof, the pinnacle over the structure, this roof line pointing upward, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. That was the motto of mottos in the Reformation. The purity and the fidelity of the other four lead to the glory of God in the church. The church of Jesus Christ exists first and foremost for the glory of God. This is where Rome's theological confusion took them. The glory of God was obscured by endlessly pointing them to the glories of men, the the Pope, the saints, the bishops. Christ was a mere sideshow in Rome. Yet before Christ, all popes, all bishops, all pastors, all elders are but a breath and a vapor. He is the creator and the shaper of the universe. He's the architect and builder of the church. He is the one who alone has power to save sinners by his word. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. This universe and everything in it were created as a theater to display the glory of God on center stage. This is the great reason for all created existence, including yours and mine, to glorify him. He's the one who is infinitely more glorious and more worthy of our attention and our affection than even you and I could imagine in a thousand lifetimes. 
Years ago, I read a book by a famous atheist who spoke about how foolish Christians are to think that in this great universe, we actually matter. How would you answer him? I thought about this. A good answer would be that this universe doesn't exist to portray the importance of man. This universe exists to portray the importance of God and the glory of God. And so the whole life of the church and the whole of the Christian life is intended to draw our eyes away from ourselves and upwards to the beauty of the glory of Christ. That's the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You could walk away from today's sermon thinking, you know, that that Luther, he was a pretty impressive guy. Calvin, he really had it together. And if you do, you've totally misunderstood not just this sermon, but the way that the grace of God works in the gospel. Luther was a very flawed man. All of the reformers were. All of the great pastors throughout history were. Your pastors here are greatly flawed men. And that's exactly the point. Despite it all, Christ is building his church. And he builds his church not through the mighty, the powerful, the noble, but through very flawed vessels. Why? So that the glory of God might shine upon us and that we, as the church, might reflect the glory of God to the world as the moon reflects the light of the sun. So how do we apply soli deo gloria? I said it was the motto of mottos for the Reformation, but it needs to be more than a motto for us. Mottos are easy, talk is cheap. But let me ask you, dear ones, do you see the purpose of your life, the purpose for which you exist, as being to reflect, to display to the world the glory of God, the way the moon reflects and displays the brilliance of the sun? Even within the Christian life, there is much that we can do right, as Roman Catholicism shows us, but do it for the wrong reasons. We can do it to try to earn favor with God. We can do it to try to be recognized by others. We can do it simply because it's what we do. We can even settle into a mode of of Protestant church life where we know all the right answers. We can talk all about all the right things. We become experts in church politics. We can answer all the right questions. And yet the glory of God does not move us at all. Friends, if the glory of God does not move you, then I think it's safe to say you have never encountered the gospel. How could we, of all people who have the scriptures, who know of the salvation that is by grace alone, in Christ alone, received by faith alone, how can we not stand in awe of the grace and glory of God? This is why men like Calvin and Luther and Zwingli were so passionate about these things because they understood that in the gospel, nothing less than the glory of God was at stake. And so when a church abandons any of these five pillars, uh, any of the pillars, when they abandon the foundation, the glory of God departs from the church. 
First Scots, this isn't just a history lesson. These five issues are at stake right now, not only in our culture, but in every church. And the temptation for every church is towards compromise. Haven't we seen that in our study of the letters to the churches in Asia Minor? Every one of them, founded probably by Paul or other apostles or early members of the church. And five of the seven, by the end of the first century, had already let go of the gospel. And the glory, if it hadn't already departed, it was getting ready to. But Christ will build his church. He does so not through the traditions of men, but through the scriptures. As the gospel, which is salvation by grace alone, through Christ, uh, in Christ alone, through faith alone, transforms lives to the glory of God and a transformed people go out into a lost and dying world. That's what Luther was arrested for. That's what Calvin was run out of Geneva for. That's what Jan Hus was burnt at the stake for. This is what countless others, other martyrs gave their lives for. But far more importantly, this is what Jesus died for, to build his church. And the way he does it is on the foundation of Scripture alone, built up with the pillars of grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone, pointing all upward to the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the scriptures and how they remind us of all that Christ has done. And we confess to you that there is a temptation in all of our hearts to be guilty of doing what Rome did. We all are in need of reformation. We all look other places, including to ourselves, for the things that Christ alone can provide. And so I pray, O oh God, that you would settle us on these convictions, that we would be uh, built up by the Lord Jesus, that it would be, First Scots would be a, a building founded upon the scriptures alone, held up by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, all to the glory of God alone. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.